Hello, my name is Chris Hefner. I'm the pastor of Wilkesboro Baptist, and I'd like to thank you for listening to this message from Wilkesboro Baptist Church in Wilkesboro, North Carolina. For more information and resources, visit wilkesborobaptist.org. Tonight in um, our subject material, we're going to continue our discussion of special revelation and what that means and how we define that. And tonight's subject is uh, special revelation and inspiration, the doctrine of inspiration, as well as how we can have confidence in the manuscripts that we have. Last week, we talked about the process of canonization, which is essentially how the 66 books of the Bible came together to be recognized as authority, as God's Word given to us. And there are a couple of things that are really close to that in terms of how we understand not only the canon, but how those books got to be and how they got to be uh, considered uh, Scripture and also with the doctrine of inspiration. So we're going to try to work through all of those things uh, tonight or several of those things tonight. For starters, Scripture is inspired by God, and this is really what we're going to aim at in discussing all of our subject material, is inspired by God, which makes it authoritative and practical as the rule of faith for Christians and authoritative for all it claims. So let me unpack that for just a minute, let you know where we're going. That's going to provide essentially a basic theme, not just tonight, but also next week when we look at inerrancy and sufficiency and clarity of Scripture, the undergirding doctrine that grounds those issues, and those are tremendously important, comes from the doctrine of inspiration. So that Scripture inspired is inspired, makes it practical or the rule of faith. Here's what that means, and we'll finish up with this as well. In 2 Timothy 3, uh, 15 and six, or 16 and 17, Paul writes, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. So at one level, the doctrine of inspiration is a foundational doctrine that helps us understand how we can have confidence in what we have as Scripture. But at another level, it's completely practical, meaning that God's Word is not just something that is meant to be studied as if it is a science textbook. It's not just something to be memorized and interacted with on an intellectual basis, though it is that, and we should do that. It's something that should be applied and practiced. In other words, it provides us our rule of faith. It offers us an application guide for how we live our our lives as Christians. And I've said this before, and I'm going to continue to reiterate it as long as we're dealing with the subject of special revelation, because it is of primary importance. When we open up Scripture and we read God saying for us to do something or saying for us to believe something or saying for us to stop doing something, He doesn't write that so that we will understand better He doesn't just write that so that we will grasp an idea better. He writes that so that we will put it into practice in our lives. It is intended, Scripture and scriptural claims are intended to affect the way we live live our lives. So it's our rule of faith. 
But the other thing that the doctrine of inspiration does is it makes it authoritative for all that it claims. Now, uh, we'll unpack that a little bit more when we look at the doctrine of inerrancy. Essentially, though, what I mean by authoritative, authoritative and all that it claims is that when God says something to be true, something to be false, something to be right, something to be sinful, something to be avoided, something to be embraced, that means that God's saying to us, this is the way you need to think about things. One of the greatest challenges that we have as Christians with practically in our lives is acknowledging that when God says something, we have an obligation to change our mind to agree with Him. Okay? Some, some of you gentlemen and ladies in here that are married, you can understand that dilemma at a practical level, right? Some of you disagree with your spouse from time to time. Some of us maybe from time to time more often than others of us time to time more often. And those of us that have learned to interact well with our spouses, sometimes we just need to recognize, amen, fellas, sometimes we need to recognize that I just need to stop disagreeing with my wife. Occasionally, it's, it's right for me to just change my mind and realize that my spouse is right. And occasionally, ladies, sometimes you need to admit that for your husband, too. I'm just going to be honest there. Well, I say that a little bit humorously, but in reality, that Scripture is authoritative and all it claims. Here's what it means, that if I come to Scripture or come to an area of Scripture where I'm thinking differently than God has said, God is the one who's authoritative, not me. I don't ask God to change. God asks me to change. So uh, let's look at some, some practical examples of what I'm talking about. And let's base Scripture on facts. So I've done some reading over the last few years and the last few weeks even about the doctrine of Scripture and the doctrine of, of Revelation. I've read some people I disagree with. I've read some people that I agree with. And there are some that would look and say, Ah, this book is just a collection of human writings. It just comes from people. Some of them may have been brilliant. Some of them may not have been brilliant. They've given us some really good ideas, but they're not completely right. They're not always accurate. And there are a lot of ways that Scripture um, is criticized. I'm talking about the, the subject of textual criticism. In other words, where someone would look at the book of Scripture, the book of the Bible, books of the Bible, and say, okay, we think man wrote it, so we can, uh, we can unpack it, we can deconstruct it, we can discover how it's flawed. One of the ways that that has been done over the years is to compare and contrast the manuscripts that we have of Scripture with one another. Because, you know, if, if you have two different copies of the same book of the Bible and one copy says one thing and one copy says another thing, well, then maybe we're not sure that we can trust that, that those copies were inspired by God. And that's a criticism that is, is regularly promoted. One of those that has offered his uh, version of textual criticism is Bart Ehrman. He's a professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And he actually has acknowledged that there are over 400,000 variants, textual variants, within all the manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. Now think about that. 400,000 textual variants. And, and he writes that in his book and, and uses that to make this claim that... Hold on a second. We, the, the Bible that we have may not be something that we can trust 
and have confidence in. But there are some problems with Bart Ehrman's claim and some things I want to help us understand as to why we can trust that what we have is actually God's word. Here's claim. Here's fact number one. There are 5,756 New Testament manuscripts that scholars have to compare with one another. 5,756. You say, well, that's just a number you're throwing out there. Well, yeah, it is a number you're throwing out there. But when we compare that with other manuscripts that we have from similar eras, for example, uh, Herodotus and Thucydides, Thucydides, excuse me, there are two uh, uh, historians, Greek historians of the past, who are very well regarded as being factual historians. We have 109 manuscripts for Herodotus and 95 for Thucydides. Uh, for Plato, everybody in here has heard of Plato, the philosopher, Greek philosopher. We have 219 manuscripts for Plato. Uh, a Roman writer of Tacitus, you may have heard of him, or Livy. Livy, we have 150 manuscripts. For Tacitus, we only have 31. The largest number of manuscripts that we have for any ancient writing would actually be Homer's Iliad. and We have about 2,300 different manuscripts from those writings. And yet, in the New Testament, we have 5,756 manuscripts to compare and contrast. Another observation that I would make about those particular manuscripts is that for many of those manuscripts, there is a significant uh, difference in time. For example, for Thucydides and Herodotus, the, the, the discrepancy between the original autograph, when they were originally written, and the earliest manuscript we have is about 1,200 years, from when they lived to the earliest manuscript that we have. When you look at the New Testament manuscripts, they were all within 250 years, and some of the earliest connections between the original manuscripts, the original autographs, which, by the way, we do not have the original autographs. The 66 original books of the Bible, they were penned on scrolls. We don't have those. We have copied manuscripts that have survived afterward. But even the earliest of those are within about 35 years the Gospel of John is within about 35 years of the earliest manuscript we have. And for the rest of the New Testament, all of the New Testament that we have is within 200 years, which is a far closer date to the original autographs for the copies that we have than many of the other ancient writings uh, that we would compare and contrast with. Now, I don't say that so that we can draw some kind of argument that some of these other writings are, you know, are fallible or wrong. I'm just making the case that when you compare the date, how early we have the manuscripts with how many manuscripts we have, we should have a pretty good idea that what we have can be compared with what, it, what takes place. So let me give you another fact, a final one. A safe estimate, a safe estimate, okay? This is not a big argument. A safe estimate is that 99% of the original words in the New Testament, 95% of the original words in the Old Testament are recoverable. What do I mean by that? Well, you remember that 400,000 textual variants that Bart Ehrman claims? Between 70 and 80% of those are simply slips of the pen. So when you take 5,756 manuscripts and you compare with each other and you have variants within each other, 70 to 80% of those variants are simply 
the lack of punctuation, a dropped-off letter, or some other completely minuscule, insignificant variant. There's another example of a variant there as well. Uh, Another one would be a minor difference. So maybe there is the gospel or the John rather than John. So maybe an added word. That's completely insignificant when it comes to its meaning. That's about another 10 or 12% of the differences. Meaningful, not viable differences would be things like uh, in one text of Scripture, in one manuscript, it says the gospel of God. And a variation in another manuscript that's different, that's meaningful but not viable. In other words, it's not important. It's the gospel of God and the gospel of Christ. Anybody in here going to have any problem if it's the gospel of God or the gospel of Christ? Well, no, none of us are. The, the meaningful and viable differences make up less than 1% of the discrepancies in the 5,756 manuscript con- contra- not contradictions, but variances within those particular manuscripts. Less than 1% are both meaningful and viable. And what do I mean by meaningful and viable? It's not, uh, it's not like one manuscript says Jesus spoke a lie and another manuscript said Jesus spoke the truth. Okay, It's not meaningful in that sense. It doesn't change the meaning of the text, at least the, the, the heart of the text. It would be something like this, for example. In uh, Romans 5.1, one manuscript says, Let us have peace with God. Are you ready for the variation? Variation is we have peace with God. So less than 1% are made up of meaningful variations. In other words, that changes the verse. There are different words there, but it doesn't have any variation of legitimate meaning within the verse. That means that what we have, the New Testament that you would open up, whether you have the Living Bible, the New Living Translation, excuse me, not the Living Bible, that's a paraphrase, but the New Living Bible... New Living Translation, the ESV, King James Version, NIV, whatever um, New Testament you have, we can be confident that it is, in essence, what was given and written 2,000 years ago or so when the first writers gave us the New Testament. So what do we mean by the doctrine of inspiration? Some key scriptures there that deal with that. I've already read 2 Timothy 3.16. Another one that would be important for our understanding of the doctrine of inspiration is 2 Peter uh, chapter 3. Excuse me, uh, for, let's do 1 Peter chapter 1 first. And that should be 1 Peter instead of 2 Peter there. And so if you look under key scriptures, I've got uh, 2 Timothy and Luke, John 10, 35. That should be 1 Peter 1, so I apologize for that being incorrect. Nope, it is 2 Peter 1. 2 Peter 1, and we have... Verse 19, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What Peter's saying is that we know that the Scripture 
And by Scripture, Peter would have been talking about the Old Testament text in specific. He does talk about some other things. We'll look at that in a moment. But he would have been talking about the Old Testament text. And he's not necessarily limiting himself to the Old Testament prophecies. You certainly can see that there. But if you look in Luke chapter 24, the two texts there, and we won't read those. But this is when Jesus is on the road to Emmaus talking with those two disciples. He said, Scripture says that he opened up the Old Testament, the, the, the law and the prophets, and he told them everything that they said about himself. And then in the second reference in Luke 24, it says he explained to them or helped them understand that the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, which the law, the prophets, and the writings are the three divisions of the Hebrew Old Testament in a Hebrew version of the Bible. We divide it up a little differently in our version of the 40 books, but the Old Testament um, saints would have divided it up into prophets and writings and uh, law, or the, the Torah. And so Jesus said in all three of those categories, all three of those sections, this is how you understand who I am. So what Peter's doing here and what Jesus would do is essentially saying all of the Old Testament fits into that framework of Scripture. And it didn't come by anyone's own interpretation. In other words, it wasn't like Isaiah just woke up one day and said, ooh, I think I'll write the Bible, and started writing that down. That's, that's not what took place. It's something much more important took place. Uh, how can we be confident of that? Well, Paul says all Scripture is inspired by God. That means it's God-breathed. Let me give you another example of that, Second Peter 3.16, because I know the question that may be on your mind is, how then can we be sure that the New Testament, the 27 books in the New Testament, fit in that framework? Because the New Testament speaks about the Old Testament as Scripture, meaning that it's authoritatively God-breathed. How can we then take the 27 books of the New Testament, beginning with Matthew, finishing with Revelation, and consider them to be God-breathed as well in conjunction with the Old Testament? Well, Peter says something interesting in chapter 3, verse 16 of 2 Peter. Uh, We'll pick up in verse 15. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So he's acknowledging that Paul has spiritual wisdom as he does in all of the letters, when he speaks of them in these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. I'm just going to tell you that's a very encouraging verse of the Bible. How many of you have read the book of Romans, places in the book of Romans, and you're like, what in the world? I I, I don't understand. This is difficult for us to understand. Here's the cool thing. The apostle Peter said he had a hard time understanding some of what Paul was writing. There's a little bit of encouragement there, meaning that there's a depth to some of Paul's letters that are hard. But notice what he says, "...in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures." Here's what Peter says. Peter says, "...Paul's writings are twisted as the other scriptures." Meaning, in a, in a kind of a sideways way, what Peter's saying is, that Paul's writings we can equate with scriptures. In other words, he's speaking to us the very words of God, and we need to acknowledge them and understand them and seek to discern them. So there is an internal witness or an internal claim from the New Testament to even recognize the New Testament writings as scripture. Another example comes out of 1 Timothy 5.18. This is a fascinating example, by the way. You will 
see what Paul makes a claim of, 1 Timothy 5.18. He says this, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. He's talking about um, elders and pastors or preachers, that uh, it, it's appropriate for, for them to be paid. And then he says, For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. If your Bible, like mine, has a note there, you might look down and see that it comes from Deuteronomy 25.4, where basically what Paul does is he's interpreting that verse in Deuteronomy 25, not just to be about oxen that you should feed when they plow the ground, but ministers that can be paid. But here's the interesting thing. He also makes a quote directly from Luke 10.7, because the second part of that quote, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads the grain, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. Labor deserves his wages. That phrase, the laborer deserves his wages, is not found in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. It's found in Luke chapter 10, verse 7, Luke's gospel, and a direct quote from Jesus himself. And so what Paul does in 1 Timothy, he is already equating the New Testament, Luke's gospel in the New Testament, with the scriptures in the Old Testament. And this is within, I mean, Paul's writing within 30 years, 35 years of the birth of the church. So here's why that's important. The New, and New Testament writings were not just good ideas. They weren't just letters to be, you know, encouraging. They, they were different. They were to be equated with the Old Testament scriptures. And why does that give us confidence? Because if they already considered them on par with the Old Testament Scripture, then that's not just a new idea. It's not just something a few harebrained Christians came up with maybe 1,600 years ago or 400 years ago. Oh, wait a second, this is God's Word. No, it's something that they held very early on in the life of the church. So what do we mean by the doctrine of inspiration? Theories of inspiration. Let me give you five and all five of these come from the textbook some of you have picked up, and, and maybe you read these this week, but all five of these theories come from there directly. The first theory of inspiration, and by the way, when we're talking about inspiration, we're talking about the God-breathedness of Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God. That means it's breathed out. How did that happen? How did God invest in a particular individual so that Paul or Isaiah or Moses or whoever Bible writer it might have been would write then what God spoke and it would be understood that it was Scripture. How did that take place? And that is a doctrine that has been much debated over the years. And so there are various theories of how that interpretation takes place. The first blank there under theories of inspiration is intuition. Essentially, the Bible writers had a high degree of insight. That's how inspiration came to be, a high degree of insight. Uh, that's not a terrible description. However, the challenge with that being a viable theory of inspiration is some of you in this room have a high degree of insight in various subjects, in various areas of study. And just because you and I may have a high degree of insight in a study that we're in a, in a field that we're real well researched on, does not mean that then we can assume that we can write Scripture. So it doesn't really answer the question well enough, at least in my mind. A second theory of inspiration would be illumination. 
This is where the Holy Spirit heightened the author's experiences or insights. In essence, it's different only in degree, not in kind, from the Holy Spirit's work in all believers. One of the things that we need to understand, especially what Jesus says in John's Gospel, is that the Holy Spirit's job is to give us insight into Scripture. It's God's job through the Holy Spirit to help us understand and interpret and apply God's Word. One of the beautiful things is that as followers of Jesus... It is helpful for you to have pastors and interpreters, and it's helpful for you to read books and work through interpretation theories. But you, as a follower of Jesus, have the Holy Spirit, the greatest interpreter, indwelling you, and he will guide you into the truth of Scripture. The beautiful thing about God is, and the way he gave us his word, is you do not have to have some higher expert, some more learned person in order for you to understand the basic tenets of what Scripture says because God's given us His Holy Spirit. But in this particular theory, the idea is that the Holy Spirit is is really no different in giving illumination to the Scripture writers than maybe He is giving illumination to us. You and I might experience God's illumination. I hope you do at various times in your life and in your scriptural study and in your direction But I think we ought to be careful not to equate the illumination we experience. The Holy Spirit may shine a light on something with scriptural revelation. So I'm I'm uncomfortable with that being a viable theory of inspiration. A third option would be the dynamic theory. This is the combination of divine and human elements in the scripture. This is where some have said, well... Um, you know, God used uh, the, the genius and brilliance of Paul or Moses or whoever Bible writer it might have been, and he kind of combined the human and the, um, and the divine in giving us Scripture. At some level, this is helpful because one thing I do need you to understand is that the authors of Scripture are not writing in a dictation form, and we'll talk about that in a moment. God did use the experiences, the intellect, the understanding, the heritage and background of different Bible writers when he gave them the inspired scripture. He used Moses, for example, and Moses' understanding of Egyptian religious laws and religious experiences when Moses wrote the Torah. I mean, there there are overlaps. He used that. He used Paul's understanding of of the Old Testament when Paul wrote his epistles. So there is that. And yet, I don't think the dynamic theory goes quite far enough. Because I I think that God actually inspired not just the meaning of Scripture, but I think God inspired the very words of Scripture. I think when we read the book of Luke, or when we read the book of Acts, or Romans, or in the Old Testament, and we see a particular word, I think we can have confidence that God intended that word to be there for a reason. And it's our job as students to understand what that is. And that gets us to the fourth theory. That is the verbal theory of inspiration. This is where the Holy Spirit guided the thoughts of the writers and specific words. And this is the beautiful uh, kind of interconnection between the Holy Spirit and the Bible writers that gave us the scriptures as we have them. Now, this is not dictation. Dictation is that theory that says, essentially, somehow, the Holy Spirit looked Paul or Moses or whoever it was in the eye or whispered in their ear, write this. 
And they simply wrote out exactly what the Holy Spirit whispered in their ear, word for word, line for line, page for page. That's a similar idea to say what, uh, what Muhammad did when the Quran was transcribed. He had the vision. He was illiterate, by the way, Muhammad was. And so he gave the utterance of what the Quran was, and a lieutenant of his wrote it down, who was not illiterate. That would be dictation. I don't believe that's what happened with Scripture. There is a mysterious element to it, but it's God speaking through people. I think that's going to be a little bit mysterious. I don't think that should bother us. If God's going to speak to us through people, there, there should be a little mystery there. There should be a little of us where we walk away thinking, well, that makes sense, but how in the world, you know... How did that happen? But the verbal theory of inspiration is what I hold and what I think is taught by Scripture. And I think it's the, the best way for us to make sense of those. Probably the dynamic theory or the dictation theory are not so far off that if you decided I really like that, I don't know that you're being heretical to hold one of those. The other two, I just don't think go far enough because they don't elevate Scripture enough to be God's revelation. So let me give you three takeaways as we close out tonight. The first is this. We can be confident that what we have as the Bible is what was originally understood to be the Scriptures. So I think that with the amount of manuscripts that we have, with what the Bible claims for itself, that it's God-breathed, when you open up the Bible tonight or tomorrow morning, I hope you'll have your devotions in the next 24 hours. And when you open up the Bible and you read wherever you're reading from, you can have confidence that what we have is what God intended for us to have. I mean, it, it, it is his word. And, and there's, there's a confidence that can come from that. Um, a second takeaway. Because God breathed the scriptures, we are accountable to them. Now, this is going to lead us into next week as we look at the inerrancy of scripture, we look at the sufficiency and clarity of scripture. Folks, if God spoke his word, if he is guiding us and directing us, then we have an obligation to respond to it. Uh, you need to know this. When you read through the stories of Scripture, and we're doing some of that in our Welcome to the Story series on Sunday mornings, God appeared to Abraham and spoke, and Abraham had to obey. We're going to find out Sunday that God appeared to Moses in a burning bush, and Moses had to obey what, Paul, or excuse me, what God said. We're going to, we discovered with Job, he had a lot of complaints that he made over a number of chapters. And God showed up and spoke, and Job shut his mouth and responded to God's word. Folks, if this is God's word, if he breathed out the truths of Scripture, then you and I are accountable to them. I don't get to walk away from here thinking, you know what, I, I like our pastor and I like what he says about Scripture, but he's just telling us what he wants us to hear. I mean, you can believe that, you can think that, you can think that on a Sunday morning, but I promise you that's not the way I try to preach Scripture because these aren't my ideas. I didn't wake up one morning and think, man, I really want to talk about God showing up in a burning bush because that's just crazy unless it actually happened which it did happen. But, but my point is this. If God breathed Scripture, if He says it, we're accountable for it. I mean, think about it in this way, illustrated as parents. 
You know, sometimes we have parent, as parents and grandparents have been guilty of being too nice with our children. Maybe, maybe not quite as clear about what we should do or who we should be or who they should be. And there are probably times that we expected them to obey in a way that they didn't follow through with, that they didn't obey. And you know, sometimes that's the fault of our rebellious children. But other times, let's be honest, it's the fault of us for not being clear. How many of you have caught yourself not being clear and realized that, oh wait, I wasn't clear and so my child disobeyed and guess what? If we're gracious and if we're honest, we usually pull back a little bit. We take them off the hook for their disobedience in that moment and we give them some grace. And then what do we do? We clarify what we said, right? What we intend. And we make it so that our children and our grandchildren know for sure what we intended, And then what do we do? We hold them accountable for what they now know they're supposed to do. The same is true with us in Scripture. Folks, if God breathed it, I don't get to turn around and say, okay, God, you said it, but I'm not really a big fan. I don't don't want to do what you said. Well, you're, you're more than welcome to live that way. But that is begging for God's punishment and God's judgment. If he said it, then we're accountable to it. And that really leads us, in other words, a high view of Scripture, which is what I hold and what I think we hold as a church, should lead us into a high lifestyle of biblical practice. In other words, it should direct us not just to believe rightly, but to behave rightly. Does that make sense? Because God holds us accountable for what He says. Here's the... Third takeaway, which follows along the line, along those lines, we must allow God to speak to us, change us, and guide us from his word. So the next time you open scripture, you read it, think of it as God speaking to you. Because it is God speaking to you. I won't, I won't belabor this point tonight. Some of us wonder, does God speak to us today? I really think that's probably more of an appropriate conversation when we discuss the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and how the Holy Spirit works in our lives and guides us and gives us impressions and gives us directions. But let me, let me caution us with something. Yes, God does speak to us today, but the primary way that God speaks is through His Word. That's not to say you can't have a question that you ask of God that the Scripture would never answer. Should I take job X? When I have an opportunity to take job X and I'm in job Y. I mean, that, that's, uh, the, the Bible's not going to answer that directly uh, in, in that specific sense. And you can ask God that, and God can give guidance and direction there. I don't, I don't I absolutely think He can. But I will say this the primary way that God speaks is not in those impressions. And not, He does, He can. The primary way He speaks is here. And for some of you that are looking for God to speak in some of those uncertain areas of our lives, I'll tell you this, if you're not willing to listen to what he said that's been clear, you're going to find it very hard to hear what he has to say in areas where it might not be so clear. The understanding and taking Scripture as God speaking to us is a very safe way, at least in, in a biblical sense, to live our Christian lives. Okay, God says it. That's, that's what I'm supposed to do and how I'm supposed to obey. Amen. Uh, I mentioned Sunday that I had copies of Becoming Resilient by Dr. Donna DeGibbs.
I have about 20 copies or so remaining. If you'd like to pick up one, you're welcome to get one tonight. Uh, Laura Stroud can take the $10 that, that it costs for those books. I would recommend that greatly. If you're going through a time where you're struggling with some things and you've not found it easy to get over that hump of facing a spiritual difficulty or a personal difficulty, uh, a relational difficulty, whatever it might be, um, she gives some great insights into how to be spiritually resilient in those situations. So um, they're for us to be distributed and you say, what do you do when you're done with it? Well, I promise you, you're going to find somebody else after you read that book. You're going to think, man, they could use that. Because that's what I did when I read it. That's why we bought 32 copies. Because I read it and I thought, man, there's some people that need that. So I tell you what do. If you get a copy and you read it and you find it helpful, find somebody to give that copy to and share with somebody else, okay? Uh, so that'll be the way that we close out tonight. I'm going to pray, uh, but I'm going to ask, if you don't mind, to pray for me and my voice. Uh, I've been fighting this cough and cold for about two weeks now, and um, I, I usually can make it long enough on Monday and Tuesday to get to Wednesday and be able to teach, and then I can kind of be really quiet on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, or sometimes be really quiet on Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and be ready to teach on preach again on Sunday. But I'd appreciate your prayers that my voice will uh, recover a little bit and I'll get through some of this, uh, especially in leading into Sunday as we, we move into worship on Sunday. So join with me in a word of prayer tonight, if you will. Gracious Father, thank you that you've given us your word and I thank you that we can count on you and trust in you. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the way that you intervene in Job's situation and Lord, not for answering the question that he asked but for revealing, revealing yourself to be the God who is sufficient and able. And I pray, Lord, that you'd help us as your people to trust in you and to count on you and to depend on you, to know that you're able, to know that you're faithful, to know that you're true and right. Lord, I thank you that we are able to come together tonight and uh, think about this doctrine of inspiration. Thank you, God, that you gave us uh, 66 books rolled up into the one book, the Bible, uh, in all of those books, we can have confidence. All of those letters and testimonies, we can have confidence are inspired by you. And dear Father, as we study your word and read it and interact with it, I pray, Lord, that you'd remind us of our responsibility to be accountable to you, to submit to you and to obey you. Lord God, you know the situations that we face. Uh, I know that in this room are represented trials and struggles pains and difficulties, sufferings and sicknesses and illnesses. I know that in the life of our church, there, <coughs> there are family members and friends and co-workers, church members and neighbors who are facing significant challenges, trials and difficulties. Uh, they are going through things that are, that are painful. They're going through things where they need your presence. And Lord, I ask that you intervene. Use us to be your hands and feet, your ministers in many of those situations. But I pray, Lord, that where you can and where you desire, you would heal and you would show grace and, and healing to those, those on our prayer list. Father, I lift them up to you. Those in the hospital, those fighting and facing surgeries, those dealing with difficulties where you intervene in their circumstances and be a God who heals. We can count on you, and so we do. Father, I'm thankful for our deacons and our church leaders and all that they do in the life of our church and how they share each week about mission partners and prayer partners that we have in the life of our congregation. I'm mindful, Lord, tonight 
of the EMS workers, the EMT workers, police officers, and those who serve in our community, uh, taking care of our neighborhoods, uh, responding to uh, catastrophes and uh, situations that sometimes are violent. In, in some ways, those put their lives on the line for us as citizens of this county or residents in this city. Heavenly Father, I pray for them, and I pray, Lord, that they would know that you love them and that you care about them and help them to know that there's a church that cares about them and that prays for them. I lift up those that are represented in our congregation that work in those departments. Will you bless and care for them and be with them as they uh, care for those around them in, in the different capacities that they have? Heavenly Father, I thank you for our staff and the Awana ministry that's going on tonight and our student ministry the choir and the praise team and all that they do to prepare us for worship or lead our children in understanding scripture. I pray, Lord, that you bless them in their ministries and use them as they share your good news. Father, we do lift up our lost friends and family members, those that we have prayed for for days, months, and sometimes even years. I pray, Lord, that you'd intervene in their situations, that you convict them of their sin and draw them to salvation and help us to, Lord God, to be faithful witnesses of your good news to those who desperately need salvation. Father, send us where you want us to go in declaring the good news of your Son, and use us and bless us as we uh, declare your ministry and make disciples of our neighbors and the nations. We pray uh, that you would guide us as we leave here tonight. Thank you for the privilege to be here and enjoy uh, study and fellowship. Pray your blessings on our church family and on us as we exit this evening. In Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Wilkesboro Baptist Church. For more information and resources, visit wilkesboroadbaptist.org. We are leading our neighbors and the nations to follow Jesus. Come and join us.